We are picking up where we left off two Lord's Days ago, and we're looking at Paul's great letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. If you have your copy of Scripture, as always, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have that open and to be reading along with me. And so as you're turning to Ephesians 2, I would just note that we're looking this morning in a special way at verses 8 through 10, but for the sake of context, I'm going to read back from verse 1. If you have been with us, you will remember that the Apostle Paul spent 202 words explaining the greatness of the spiritual blessings that God has already given to us in Christ, having chosen us in him before the foundations of the world and having poured out his blessings on us because he has united us to Christ by faith, that he is then turned to praying for the Ephesians. And in that prayer in chapter 1, verses 15 and following, he has prayed that God would show them more of what they already possess in Christ. That's always the great need of Christians. It's not that I know enough. It's that I need to see more of what I probably already know, but I need the eyes of my heart open to see more of the riches of Christ. And then as we came into chapter 2 where we are this morning, we have seen the great plight of man, why salvation has to be by grace and grace alone, and it's because by nature we are dead in sins. We have walked according to the world, according to the spirit of the air, uh, the evil one among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh and were by nature as the rest, children of wrath. And then by way of contrast, what God has done there in verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together in Christ. And so we are picking up now in Ephesians chapter 2. And the passage we're looking at this morning, as you know, is one of the most well-known and most well-loved of all passages in Scripture by believers. And so, beginning in verse 1 again, the Apostle Paul now says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures 
forever. Well, almost 20 years ago, Anna and I were engaged in an evangelistic ministry in which, I've told you about this at times, we'd go out into the boardwalk in Wildwood, New Jersey, and for 77 consecutive nights, we would seek to witness to people. And on one occasion, I remember us having an interaction with a girl who was a soccer player at a well-established college uh, in New Jersey. And she had grown up Roman Catholic, and in the course of our conversation, at some point, I had said to her, her name was Melody, I had said, Melody, um, if you die, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And she said, yes. And I said, why? And she said, because I try to be a good person. Now, keep in mind that nine out of ten people we asked this question to all said that. I've tried my best. I'm not perfect. I try to do my best. I try to be good. Because that is deeply ingrained into the human heart. That's in your heart. That's in my heart by nature. And Melody said, you know, I I try to do good things. And, and I said, well, Melody, the scripture makes it clear that no one is saved by what they do. And I, I brought her to this passage. And I said, you see, the apostle Paul says here, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. And I said, in the book of Romans, Paul contrasts God's grace with human effort and works and attempts to bring something to God and, and says salvation's by grace, not by works. It's by faith, not by law-keeping. And she continued to argue with me. And so I finally said, I said, Melody, if, if you're playing a championship game, she was a striker. Somehow I have all this etched in my brain. I said, if, if you're playing the championship game and you score the winning goal, who gets the glory? And she said, I do. And I'll never forget how off guard she was caught. She said, I do. And I said, and that's the point. If you work for salvation, you get the glory. And that's the argument that the Apostle Paul makes here. Notice verse 9. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, I've already noted that the Apostle has brought forward the bad news. He's told us what we are. We have to come to terms with that. We have to accept what we are by nature. We are dead in sins and trespasses. We have walked like dead men and women in a world of dead men and women walking. There is nothing spiritually good in us. There is nothing we can bring to God. There is no way that we can help, us help ourselves out of that. We are slaves by nature to Satan and sin, to the world and to the ultimate judgment that is impending. And yet, against that background, against the background of Paul telling these believers, and by way of analogy, us, what we are by nature is the good news of what God has done, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together in Christ. And then notice what Paul says right after making that statement at the end of verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Notice this. By grace, you have been saved. And then he doesn't complete his sentence. And he goes on to tell us about the grace that's going to come to us in the hereafter. And then here in verses 8 through 10, he comes back to what he started in verse 5. Now, if you were to go through 
Ephesians 1 and 2, you would notice that Paul is constantly returning to the theme of God's grace because he wants to establish in the minds of God's people that there is absolutely nothing we have done to merit the salvation that God freely gives us in Christ. That not even the faith that God requires of you is a work that we bring to God. It doesn't add to what Christ has done. It doesn't produce anything before God that makes him want to accept us. Um, The apostle is going to the greatest length here to explain to us that salvation is merely and only by grace alone. You know, the Reformation is born out of passages like Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I would just encourage you, if you've never meditated on these verses in any depth, that you would do that often. Um, They are sort of those recalibrating verses for us. In fact, I would argue that Paul's arguments in Romans and Galatians flow out of what he concisely builds into these few verses here in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And we're going to see three things this morning as we look at this. First, I want us to consider the basis of our salvation. And then secondly, I want us to consider the instrument of our salvation. And then finally, the result of our salvation, the basis of salvation, the instrument of salvation, And the result of salvation, well, as I've already noted, there at the end of chapter 5, Paul wanted to come to the section he's at now. He said, by grace, you have been saved. And and then he goes on and explains more of what we have in Christ. And then picking back up in verse 8, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. Now, while it is a somewhat inadequate definition of grace. It is helpful so far as it goes, and maybe you've heard this. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense, and that is built into it. It is altogether possible, and listen to me very carefully this morning. It is altogether possible, and I see it all the time for ministers to talk about grace in generalities, but never to tell you about the Christ who causes that grace to be operative in your life. You see, what Paul does, and I would draw your attention to this, in verses 4 through 10, he intermingles both what God has done in Christ with the understanding that the basis of it is that it is entirely by grace, that it is ultimately unmerited, that there was absolutely nothing that we brought to God to commend us to God. Um, I love that quote by Archbishop Temple, um, where he said, the only thing that we bring, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is, is that which makes it necessary. The only thing that you contribute to your salvation is that which makes it necessary. Don't miss this, because deeply ingrained in your heart and my heart is a desire to bring something to God— to merit something from God, and you can't do that. In fact, if you try to do that, you forfeit what God has done merely by grace in Christ. This is the great argument of the Apostle Paul here in Romans, in Galatians, throughout the Scriptures. This is the great defense of the truth of the gospel. This is what fueled the Reformation. This is what set 
people free from the bondage of being told you have to give more, you have to buy penance, you have to do penance, you have to buy indulgences, you have to pray to saints, you have to do this, you have to merit that. This is why Reformation broke out in in Europe. Because when the gospel is preached and you really come to understand that the salvation you have is freely and merely by God's grace, and you learn to come off of your own righteousness, it is a liberating truth. Um, How much does grace play into our Christian life? Well, first I'd note that there in verse 8, the apostle says, for by grace you have been saved. Now, if you know your New Testament well, you'll know that uh, the apostles sometimes speak of salvation in three tenses. Three tenses. You were saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. And that doesn't mean that salvation is uncertain. It certainly doesn't mean it can be lost. But what it means is that God begins a work of grace in the life of a man or a woman when he brings he or she from spiritual death to spiritual life, and and that that is salvation, that work of regeneration, leading to our justification, our being accepted by God. That's what Paul means when he says you have been saved, you've been regenerated, you've been raised with Christ, you've been born from above. And remember, there was nothing we could do about that. Remember when Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Unless a man is born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom. And Nicodemus said, how can these things be? He doesn't get it. He can't see. Um, He is a living, walking evidence of what Jesus is actually telling him. But here what Paul says is that, when God has raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life, that, that he has saved us by his grace. And he is now sanctifying us by his grace. That's what the New Testament writers mean when they say, you are being saved, and he will one day glorify us by his grace. Um, that's what Scripture means when it says, you will be saved. Salvation in the past, the present, and the future, and it's entirely by grace. In fact, I'd note to you, and just look back with me at verse 6, that Paul speaks about that future salvation by grace. He raised us up with him and seated, with, uh, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. You see, there is that future salvation by grace. How extensive is God's grace in the life of a believer? From start to finish, it encompasses the totality of it. And we contribute nothing except that which makes it necessary, which is our sin. Now, I don't know about you. I need to hear that every day. Every day, because our hearts, we can shift gears. I don't even think they make shift sticks anymore, but we can shift gears into self-righteousness mode very easily, even as believers. Um, We can even make our duties to read God's Word, to pray, to be in worship. You see, Paul doesn't say those things are what saved you, and in fact, you can make 
You can make those things a legal way that you think you're going to be accepted by God. And Paul is stripping all of that away. Listen to this. One of my favorite theologians, Horatius Bonar, captures this so well. Listen to this. He says, it is grace which strives with the sinner, grace which renews him, grace which leads him to the cross, grace which forgives him, grace which heals all his diseases, grace which bears with him after forgiveness, grace which guides him along, grace which fights for him, grace which comforts him, grace which trains him for the kingdom and makes all things work together for his good, grace which keeps his soul in peace amid the tumults of a stormy world, grace which maintains his unbroken fellowship with the Lord, grace which lays him down quietly to sleep in Jesus with the blessed hope of soon rising again and putting on immortality. That's how extensive grace is. From the first moving of conviction of sin to the ultimate resurrection unto glorification, God's grace is all-encompassing. I wonder this morning how often you meditate on that, that if you are sitting here as a man or woman who has been saved, um, it is merely by the grace of God. You have done nothing, nothing nothing to deserve it. You know how you know when someone gets this? He or she becomes a gracious person. And when we exhibit harshness toward others, it's an indicator that we have not gotten this. That's sort of a little litmus test. If we are angry and ornery and mean-spirited, there's something desperately wrong. We've failed to understand the freeness of God's grace in Christ, to hell-deserving sinners like us. That's, that's where we were heading. There was nothing in us. This is the basis of our salvation. This is absolutely everything. This is what puts wind in the sails of the Christian life, too, I would say. This doesn't lead to lawlessness. This actually makes in us a desire to do those things that are pleasing to the Lord. And yet grace and grace alone is the basis of salvation. Now, let me just say this this morning very briefly here. Every quote-unquote Christian fellowship will say, I believe salvation is of grace. But there are many who, when you ask them to spell grace, spell it W-O-R-K-S. They spell grace very differently than the Scripture spells it. Don't miss that. Um, it's possible for us to try to include into our doctrine of grace our works. And so notice that Paul uh, moves on now to talk about the instrument. What is the instrument by which we've saved? If the basis of our salvation is grace alone, what is the instrument? Well, notice the alone instrument, the only instrument. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. You know, just as grace needs to be defined and spelled out, so does faith, because there have been many Christians who have believed that their faith is a work that they are bringing to God. I have sat in the room with professing believers who have said, 
I know that Jesus accomplished salvation, but I have to bring my faith. No. No, you have to receive Christ by faith alone. So then what is the faith that we are saved alone by? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts this so well. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Listen to this. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. So it comes from God. It's a saving grace. Remember, Jesus is called the author and the finisher of our faith. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, it's been given to you to believe in him. If you're trusting in Christ, it's because it's been given to you. All those for whom Christ died will believe in him. Because the same grace that led Christ to the cross for you is the same grace that then provides that instrument by which you are united to him. The, the Shorter Catechism says, Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive, receive, and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the Gospels. So what is the faith by which I am saved alone? It is a receiving and resting in Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Don't miss that. If you believe on Jesus, it's not because you're better than other people. It's not because you're smarter than other people. It's not because you've made wiser decisions than other people. It's not because you're, you are more disciplined than other people. It's not because of anything inherent or intrinsic in us. Um, the Reformed theologian Cornelius Van Til says, the believer is no, no more intelligent than the unbeliever, no wiser than the unbeliever, but all that he or she has, he or she has by grace and grace alone. Even the faith that unites us to Jesus um, is by grace and grace alone. Again, I would just ask you, are you meditating on these truths enough? Um, the apostle would have us understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as the great solas of the Reformation state. And yet, notice you almost get the sense that, that Paul understands that this is going to create something of a visceral reaction in the hearts of men and women when they hear this. And so he's going to do something very interesting. Notice he is, he is first going to put it positively, and we have seen that, have we not? He, he says, uh, by grace you have been saved through faith. He's going to come back and speak positively in just a moment. He's going to say, it's the gift of God, freely given by God, and yet, in between that, he's going to go to the negative. Notice verse 9, not a result of works. Not a result of works. Um, the old Princeton theologian, and then Westminster Seminary theologian, J. Gretchen Machen, has this great article where he, he, says, um, he says, the Apostle Paul was a man who could say no. He could speak in the negative. If you want to understand the gospel, you not only have to understand what it is positively. It's a free gift of God. 
It comes merely by grace, but negatively, is not by works. Paul will do this in Galatians 2. He'll say, we know that a man is justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, but we are justified by faith in Christ, the positive, the negative, so that there's no confusion. Um, Paul is not merely saying in the negative that his hearers and us, by way of association, are not saved by ceremonial laws, as the Roman Catholic Church contended with the Reformers. He's saying by anything that you try to do, by anything, whether it is, whether it is your attempts to keep the law or whether it is your desire to bring some other supposed good work before God, it is not by works. Um, you know what's so fascinating about this? And you might miss this if we don't slow down and think about it. What's so fascinating about this is, is that it's coming from an individual who had every reason to boast in his works. This is what's so intriguing. Um, more than any person in this room, the Apostle Paul could have had reason to boast in who he was. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, it's not surprising that the apostle is so fond of putting it in this way. Before his conversion, before he became a Christian, he knew a great deal about boasting. There was never a more self-satisfied person or a more self-assured person than Saul of Tarsus. He was proud of himself in every respect. He was proud of his nationality. He was proud of the particular tribe into which he had born in, been born in Israel. He was proud of the fact that he had been brought up as a Pharisee and had sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Proud of his religion, proud of his morality, proud of his knowledge. He tells us all about it in the third chapter of Philippians. He would boast, he would stand up and say, who can challenge this? And yet, Lloyd-Jones says, he counts it all as dung and loss. He is not content to say that it was wrong. It is vile. It is filthy. It is foul. Where is boasting? It is excluded. You see, if anybody had a reason to say, well, you know, I grew up in the church and I, I've sought to do the best I can with my life. I always attended worship. I gave. Remember, the Pharisees did all those things. Remember the Pharisee that stood up and thanked God that he, he wasn't like other people did that. He said, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I fast, I give. It wasn't that he wasn't doing those things. The, the Pharisees were doing all those things. They were coming to worship. They were giving. They were very precise on all the things they thought were important. And, and by way of contrast, there was the publican who didn't do any of those things. And he bowed his head and he said, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it looks like to understand this. That when we understand that it's by grace alone through faith alone, the only thing we do in coming to God is we say, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what it looks like not to be trusting in our works. It's to say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have one more quote for you this morning, and it's so rich. I would be remiss if I left it out. Eric Alexander, 
says this about this aspect of Paul's argument that it's not of works so that no, no one may boast. He says salvation has been contrived by God in such a way that the thing it hits hardest is human pride. Salvation has been contrived by God in such a way that the thing it hits hardest is human pride. That means that the man or woman who has not been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life hates hearing everything I'm saying because it attacks human pride. It says you're not good enough, you can't do well enough, you can't do anything. In fact, you are way worse Then you realize, Alexander says, now it is this exclusion of pride and boasting that makes salvation by grace alone offensive to natural man. It is an intolerable offense to human pride to have to cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. To have to say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Um, When we have experienced God's grace and been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, we love hearing that because we know in our experience, when we get on our knees, the first thing we always say is, oh God, have mercy on me. You know, that ought to stand at the head of every prayer that we pray. It's why we confess our sins every Sunday in the worship service. It's why we ought to be in the habit of doing it throughout the week, um, keeping short accounts with God and, and saying to him, Lord, I don't have anything good in me. Unless you do this for me, unless you do this in me, I have nothing. Now, I want us to focus in the third place, not just on the basis of our salvation, nor just on the instrument of salvation. I want us to consider the result. Notice there in verse 10 that the apostle now says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, the great question you might have is, well, if salvation's all of grace and all through faith, then it doesn't matter what I do. And Paul is going to answer that sort of reaction in several ways in his letters. In Romans 6, he'll say, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Shall we continue in sin that grace may it bound? May it never be. Here he's going to come at it from a different angle, and he's going to say, while your works contribute nothing to your salvation, while your works play no part in God saving you or being gracious to you, even the fact that your faith is not a work that you bring to God, nevertheless, You are God's workmanship. And here's what's beautiful about it. The apostle is going to hold the living God out as the great restorer of his people. He's going to say, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The best illustration I can give you this morning is um, a story about the Barnes Foundation. When I was a boy, my, my mom would tell me about the Barnes Foundation often. It was a uh, foundation run by a philanthropist named Albert Barnes outside of Philadelphia, and he owned one of the 
greatest collections of art uh, of any private individual in America, and he had built into his will and his trust that um, nothing should ever be touched, none of the paintings should ever be moved, everything should remain exactly where it was. And he had Monet's and Renoir's and Manet's and Mary Cassatt paintings and all the great works of art. And Albert Barnes died, and many of those works of art, which remain downstairs in a boiler room, began to collect coal from the boiler until many of them were covered and could no longer be appreciated. And so the Board of Trustees did what you ought never do, and they filed uh, lawsuits so that they could move the collection and they could restore these paintings. And in what is a rare story in human history and art history, they were actually given the right to do that, and they began to have those paintings restored. The, the coal um, wiped away, and the beauty of the painting restored to its natural and original beauty. And that's a picture of what we are by nature. You know, we are the image of God in Adam, and yet each one of us has that image marred and blackened by sin and depravity. And what God is intent on doing in us is taking us and restoring us into the original beauty. In fact, I would argue that what Paul is saying here is that God is intent on restoring us into something even more glorious than we were in Adam. And then in the hereafter, there is going to be a glory that has never been seen anything like it in this world. Now that means if you're in Christ this morning by faith, that you are God's artwork and masterpiece. You are his work of art. He is at work in your life to restore the image of Christ in you and to lead you to do those works that he has prepared for you. Let me say this this morning. We have so many wrong understandings about good works. Many Christians, if you ask them, what is a good work? They say, well, soup kitchens or some other humanitarian cause. That is not what the Bible calls good works. The good works God created us for is that we would walk in humility, that we would have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who, being in the form of God, did not count it a thing to be grasped to be equal of God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and being found in the likeness of man, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul says to have the mind of sacrificing for others and to have the character of Christ in us, and to grow in our love for God and one another, so that we don't reduce good works down to whatever the culture tells us they are, but that we realize what God is working in us is a much greater thing, that the totality of our lives would be conformity to the image of Christ, who is the image of God. Um. I just want to point out here also in verse 10 that Paul says, you are, you are God's creation. You are his creation. Um, what happened in the work of creation when God commanded light to shine out of darkness 
Um, the scripture makes clear that he made all things out of nothing. He made all things out of nothing. What happened in your salvation? He made something out of nothing. He made something of you out of nothing in you. Um, if we want to think about what God's grace does in us in the best way possible, it's that you are now a new creation in Christ. That's what Paul says, doesn't he? In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is literally new creation. He is part of the new creation, risen with him. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Um, this is revolutionary in our lives when we really get it. When you think about yourself as a believer, do you think, I am God's workmanship. He has created me in union with Jesus to be what I wasn't before and to be what he is making me for all of eternity. I love that quote by John Newton. When he looks at his life right now, he says, you know, I'm not what I wish I was, but I'm not what I was. I'm not what I will be, but I, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's true for you if you're a believer today. You're, you're not what you will be, but praise God, you're not what you were. And by God's grace, with the Apostle Paul, we can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me is not in vain. Um, I hope that this morning, as you consider these things, you'll be encouraged to remember anew that if you are in Christ, uh, from start to finish, it's only on the basis of God's grace to you. It doesn't matter how dignified you look. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It's all of grace. And I want to encourage you to remember that God has even given you the faith that has united you to Christ. And then I want to remind you that he is continuing that work of restoring you to walk in the good works for which he has created you in Christ. That means, if you really believe this on Judgment Day, the only thing you'll be able to do is praise God. If you really believe this, the only thing you'll be able to do is boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, let him boast in this, that he knows and understands me that I am the Lord. It excludes all boasting, all human effort, all trusting in anything that we do. I want to say to you this morning, if you've never experienced this, God's grace is so large that he brings those who are still dead in sins back to spiritual life through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's a free grace, and it's a free gift, and you can't do anything to gain it, but receive it with empty hands and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would cause these truths to sink down deep into our hearts. We pray that you would remove from us all desire to trust in our efforts, our works. You would make us to understand that our salvation is by grace and grace alone, that it is by faith and faith alone, 
that it is in Christ and in Christ alone. Lord, would you make us to love these truths? Would you cause joy to well up in our souls over them? We pray that you would astonish us afresh with your grace. We also pray, our God, that you would make us to see what you are doing in us, that you are renewing us into the image of Christ to walk in those good works that you've prepared for us. So would you do these things for us and in us this morning? And would you press them home to us as we come to the table? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.